Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, award-winning Polish filmmaker Agnieszka Holland. Artistically adventurous, compassionate, and controversial, her work examines moral choice in an immoral world. From her Oscar-nominated Holocaust films Angry Harvest, Europa Europa, and In Darkness, to Burning Bush dealing with Soviet repression in Czechoslovakia, and the more recent biographical film Mr. Jones, which exposes the truth about the devastating famine in 1930s Ukraine. And Yeshka Holland focuses on the unconventional human stories that illuminate larger historical events. But that wasn't always her plan. She was born in 1948, the year Stalinism took hold in Poland. Her mother was Catholic and her father Jewish, something she discovered by accident. Growing up in Warsaw in the 1950s and 60s, Holland had no time for politics. She believed art was something separate from the burning issues and noisy arguments that occupied her idealistic parents and their friends. It wasn't until she experienced the Prague Spring while at film school in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s that her consciousness was awakened. Launching her filmmaking career back in Poland in 1971, she began working with the country's leading director, Andrzej Wajda. Her films drew attention, both good and bad. Their political slant, focusing on the nightmares of oppression, led to their being banned shortly after release. In December 1981, when martial law was imposed in Poland, Agnieszka Holland was in Sweden— She denounced the crackdown and went into exile in France. She didn't see her then nine-year-old daughter for eight months. A French citizen since 1989, Holland has become a truly international director, working in film and television in many different countries and four languages, Polish, English, German, and French. From popular adaptations of The Secret Garden and Washington Square to episodes of groundbreaking TV series The Wire, House of Cards, and Treme. Now Agnieszka Holland has a new movie, Green Border, about the Syrian refugee crisis along Poland's border with Belarus. It was competing for the Golden Lion for Best Film at this year's Venice Film Festival, and it has its North American premiere this week at TIFF. Ten years ago, Holland was at the Toronto International Film Festival with Burning Bush, a three-part series for Czech television produced for HBO Europe. It's set in 1969 during Agnieszka Holland's time in Prague, when a student named Jan Palak set himself on fire to protest the Soviet occupation. Burning Bush was screened at the festival, and that's when we spoke. Your latest film, Burning Bush, opens with a shocking scene that came to hold great symbolic weight for the Czech people. A young man setting himself on fire, a human torch. Was it ever a question for you whether you would show this act on the screen? 
it was for me pretty sure that I have to show this act. Because the brutality of this uh, act and the extremity of this act in some way wakes up the audience in the similar way Jan Palach wanted to wake up his people. And um, actually the story is not about him. He's like heroic figure in the Czech's history and he has, you know, some uh, square named after and so on. But in the same time, the people don't know about him and no one knows about him. He, he reminds some kind of the mystery. He was a very young man. He was only 21 at the time, he a was student. 21. He wasn't like, um, he was pretty shy. He had few friends, but he wasn't like known in the faculty, for example, in the university. So we know about him only what his family was able to say or some some friends of childhood or youth. And in reality, we didn't want to invent him, you know. And the story is not about him, but about the consequences of his act. So we never really see the close-up of uh, Jan Palach. And I remember when I started to make the film, um, in Czech Republic, you know, everybody knew about it. It was, you know, public knowledge. And the journalists and the people and friends asked me who is playing him. And actually, you know, it's no actor who is playing him. It means it's one actor who plays him when he lies, you know, in the hospital. It's another who gave the voice. It's another who gave the, the you know, the stuntman who ran in, in flames. But um, the only face we put on this young man, it was real face of Jan Palach, which is known from the iconic photographs, which, which was after the part of the you know, public demonstrations and, um, and the memorization. You were at film school in Prague during this period, but you happened to be out of the country when Jan Palach set fire to himself. When did you first hear of it? What was your reaction? Um, I don't remember exactly, but I think that um, I was in Warsaw and somebody called and uh, told about it. My reaction was, well, you know, it, it could be me, it could be any of my friends. It, was, it happened um, two months after the um, general uh, student strike, and I was like, in the film school, I was I was an um, important member of the, of the strike committee. And um, this kind of, the, you know, the excitement mixed with the need to, to, you know, to do something, to change the things, not to accept the oppression, was so strong about the student that uh, it didn't surprise me. In some way, it was something which, which came in the natural way. And after, for the long time, I was sure, as many people have been sure, that it was that Jan Palach was a member of a wider conspiracy, and that it was the group of people who, you know, who decided to, to, to do it and that he just uh, won the first place, if, uh, if we can tell in this way, because it was what he described in his letter. His letter, uh, his letter said that... Yes, that, it's, uh, that he's uh, the flame number, the torch number one, and that is the group of them who decided to, to do it if the things they are asking for will be not met. Because this is when uh, this is after the Prague Spring. This is after the it was after invasion the Prague Spring. It was by after the so- Soviet invasion and uh, after the, the general student strike, and when everybody started to feel that um, this hope that some, at least some, you know, things of the Prague Spring freedom will be preserved, that this hope started to fade out, and um, you started to feel among the regular folks some kind of the resignation, and. Um, Palak's act had to, his intention was to exactly to, to stop this resignation process and to wake up the people. 
And um, only when I started to prepare the film, I read the documents of the time closely, which was not accessible, of course, in in seventies. And it appeared clearly that he was alone, that he just invented this conspiracy to make the bigger pressure on the on the government authorities and you know to, to to create some kind of the feeling of the blackmail if you if you will not do what i ask you to do it will be the next victim and it worked it means everybody believed it and i remember that the, in my school when i came back to prague which happened like probably one week or 10 days after his funeral everybody was talking about who is the next torch and um, we've been talking we've been really talking that this number 2 will be one girl from the theater department and you know it was like obvious that it was some kind of the of the students conspiracy and what did you think of self immolation as a form of protest well even though it's 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 impossible to judge it is very complex the consequences of this act are very complex and um, he wasn't first. The first before him, it was the Polish man, uh, Richard Siewiec. Uh, actually, it is even in some way more tragic story because he he was older guy. He was in in, in late uh, 50s, I think, with the family man, very religious, very, you know, morally very strong. And um, his protest was after the invasion, exactly. It means um, it was against the invasion and the participation of Poland in the invasion um, uh, against Czechoslovakia. And he um, chose very good place. It was the national uh, game place, you know, stadium. And the harvest celebration of the Communist Party was happening there. And on the, on the stadium was probably like 100,000 people. And the first secretary of the party had the speech there. And after some kind of the folk dances started on the, you know, and he put himself on fire, unfortunately not during the speech of the first secretary, but when those dances started. And practically people didn't notice, you know, he burned in the middle of the big crowd and the music was playing. He was screaming, you know, his protest and was after immediately taken out by the security forces. Uh, but uh, one cinematographer from the film dailies filmed him. So this footage um, exists, and uh, after a friend of mine, the documentary director, did an incredible documentary about it. And that was, that was in Warsaw? It was in Warsaw, yes. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, no one knew about it for months and months, and I think that Palach even didn't know about it. So, so going back to him, you went back to Prague, and there there was still people active and, and mourning and... Yes, it was, this was this, um, a lot of emotions around of that. But what happened very quickly, it was that it exactly, it like disappeared, you know. The silence came, and when probably like two weeks after my coming back to Prague, another young man, Jan Zaitz, put himself on fire, no one wanted to hear about it. It was like during this month, the people decided that it's too extreme as a sacrifice. That if fighting for freedom means to take such a, you know, extreme choice, uh, we prefer maybe not to have the freedom, but to have just ordinary life, even with all the you know, amounts um, of compromises and moral corruption and everything. So in, during this month, the mood, the national mood, drastically changed. And it was 
something which I, you know, I was very young and not experienced really politically speaking or humanly neither, but I felt it like in very palpable way. I, I felt it very like physically that that now, you know, this hope of freedom and this um, will of freedom is disappearing. And that was probably one of my most important life experiences, you know, to observe the society, you know, to change to this extreme. But you, you've said that when you first came to Prague, you weren't interested in politics. No, I and, was not. And within two years, you were on the street, uh, <laughs> and one of the, as you say, one of the leaders involved in the student movement. And what happened? How did how did? You know, my 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 parents have been the communists after the war. After they've been very disappointed with the, you know with the, the real um, expression of communism. But they've been still, um, my father died during, he was arrested in some point in 61 and jumped out of the window during the interrogation uh, and killed himself. And I was 13 and I didn't understand exactly what and why it happened, but I started to feel that it is a cruel and cynical game where the individual has very little choice, you know, to make any kind of change. And the, that if I want to be an artist, I have to cut myself out of this kind of, you know, activities. And in my home, they've been, my, my stepfather and my mother and their friends were talking all the time about who will be the next secretary of the party or this guy in the central committee or whatever. I found it totally, you know, stupid. I found all those talks and discussions, if it will be X or Y, just pointless. So when uh, when the change on the top of uh, Czechoslovak Communist Party happened in um, January 68, and instead of Novotny, who was the old Stalinian, you know, f- fart, uh, came the new guy, um, Slovak actually, Alexander Dubček, I didn't pay any attention to that. I, mean, I thought that one gangster changes another gangster. And, um, and uh, it was, I, I remember exactly, it was probably March or April only, when I realized that something is going on in the really very powerful way. And it was, I was on the street and some demonstration, you know, student or maybe not student even, I don't remember the purpose of that, but they've been on the street, they've been marching. It was something so joyful, free and youthful in this, you know, outburn of the freedom that I started to go with them, just join them, you know, to curious what, where it's going and what will happen. And, you know, from this moment I was marching, I was marching till, till I was stopped actually by, you know, by the silence and prison. And prison, because you, like, like some of the characters in the film, you were arrested and you were jailed for a while. Yeah, yes, it was, it was a little later, it was in, it was in early month of 1970. And what was that like for you to be in prison? In prison, it was very interesting, actually. Interesting. <laughs> well, it was interesting. You know, I was, I was, I was in this time. I was really young and fearless, and um, everything had been the experience, like you know, like the life experience. Which, which, of course, I was scared a bit. I didn't know if I would stand it. And the prison was pretty brutal. But you know, after a few days, I was sure that I can leave it, even if it will be long. Because you so, didn't know how long it would be at the beginning? No, I didn't. They treated me, you know, very badly. And they, it was some, you know, like, treat that I can stay forever there or that they can kill me or something. You know, the, it was this kind of the nice Stalinian methods, which was especially among the prison guards. Because the interrogator, actually, who was my main interrogator, uh, he was really nice. 
He was nice to me. We had some kind of bond, you know. And I I thought that he's maybe not such a bad guy. And um, after year, after a few years, actually, when I'd been back in, in Prague for some um, reason, after I finished the school, I met my friends who've been in the opposition, uh, like Havel and And I was asking about this interrogator, what he what he became. And they said, this is one of the most brutal, terrible guy, you know, cynical pig. So... You were lucky. I was lucky, yeah. No, but, it, you know, it was also the experience that the things are always more complex and complicated. And that even with a really bad guy, you can... You can create some kind of the human, you know, connection at least for a short moment. And once you knew that you could take it, did that give you a, a better sense of yourself? That you yeah, had a sense yeah. of endurance. Mm-hmm. My biggest fear was that I can tell something, you know, which will harm another people. My friends who've been collaborating with me, so, so that it was the real, you know, real fear. And even years after, I had the dreams that I said one word too much. And that somebody was arrested because of me. But fortunately, it didn't happen. I was lucky, you know. I think it's the worst thing, you know, you can live with. And some of my friends in Poland, after he was arrested in 68, uh, some of them exactly wasn't experienced, you know, was scared and told a little too much. Until now, you know, like 40 years later, Uh, when I'm talking to them, I see that it's something, the burden which stay with them for their entire life. So I was lucky that I was, you know, that it didn't happen to me, that I was smart enough or lucky enough, you know, to navigate through the situation in, in a successful way. But if not, uh, yes, to be alone, to be in the prison, because they kept me alone for about two weeks, and to, you know, to keep being yourself, it was very interesting. Again, interesting. <laughs> uh, you say that when you came back and you saw the degree of resignation amongst people, it had a profound effect on you. Can you say how? Does it give you a, a kind of pessimism about the capacity of people? In those? I realized that the people, I realized then and after, you know, I can, I was able to see it several times in my lifetime, that the people are not really made for freedom, you know, that the people are really that they are conformists by nature, that they they need to belong and that, you know, to 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 go against the stream it's difficult and only few people are able to do it, not everybody. And it's not only in the dramatic times like that or painful times. I think it's on an everyday basis in the, you know, normal Western democracy you, you can see the same kind of the conformists and of course It doesn't translate to the, the political dimension always, but uh, but it is like that. So I, I think you cannot ask people to be heroic and you cannot ha- ask people to be extremely courageous and to sacrifice the, import- the things which are important for their like well-being. And it's normal. It means I, I don't have like great illusion about, you know, about capacity of the humanity. But I was always like fascinated by those who goes against the stream. And um, actually, especially for those who doesn't have the ambitions to be the leaders or to be, you know, that great revolutionary, but about the people who have this something inside of them that even against their will or against their good sense, they are going to things which are, logically speaking, not very good for them or for their family. And um, 
And I think it's some kind of the gene, you know. I think that it's something which is inside of your system, some kind of the gene of justice or something, that you just cannot help yourself, but you cannot accept the things which are wrong. And you found such a character uh, to tell. I mean, the focus of your film, Burning Bush, is on a young lawyer, Dagmar uh, Boroshova, who who does seem to have that gene. She takes on the Palach family's case against a government fi- official who has smeared Jan's name. At first, she's reluctant, and as you would say, like you know, going she goes against her better judgment in a sense, right. because of that conviction, that commitment to truth. But it's hard to know. I mean, this is an environment that was so repressive, the, the occupation by Soviet-packed forces. It would seem that truth was already a lost cause. Do you understand that? Well, you know, and the, the, I, I like that the reasons why she's doing is, is that they are so, you know, ambiguous in some way, you know. The shame. For example, the shame, you know, to do something, to refuse to help somebody, you know, of the shame that your young collaborator will be looking at you as, as, as a kind of the conformist. And the feeling that, you know, in some day you have to tell to your children something about yourself. And suddenly, you know, you step over this line and after you feel that it's what you have to do. It is, you know, it is very complex process how one becomes the hero. Is she regarded as a national hero? She, I mean, uh, uh, well, especially after our movie, you know, because she was a public figure. But you know, the, what is what is interesting is that in the Czech Republic and in Slovakia, after the Velvet Revolution, it means after the change, the fall of the communists in, in 1989. Yeah, uh, it was some documentaries about the period before, um, but very you know superficial in some way. When the when the future films. Um, was made about this period, was mostly shown in the comical way. Some kind of, you know, a little black comedy or a little, like, you know, funny, sweet comedy. And uh, the people was not talking about it. And um, it was exactly the reason why the young generation started to feel that they don't know where are their roots, that their parents never speak about what was their life experience. And um, the script of Burning Bush was written by a very young man. When he wrote it, he was 26, and uh, produced um, by his student fellows, because they've been still in the film school. They still are part of them, at least didn't graduate yet. And when they sent me the script, I didn't know that. I thought that uh, it was so accurate, you know, and so true and so subtle, exactly, that I thought that it must be one of my, you know, contemporaries, somebody who, who lived through this period. But it appeared that no. When they came to Warsaw, I was finishing in, in darkness in Warsaw, and they, they, they came by night train from Prague, and they opened the door of the apartment I was staying in, and, and I've seen three kids. And um, it was shocking. And they said to me exactly, you know, that they have impression that they must, that this story must to be told, that it has to open so- up some kind of the conversation and discussion among society, because they want to talk to their parents and the parents are refusing to talk to them. Uh, and, um, you know, mostly, you know, the people, it was nothing like to be proud of for most of the folks. It was exactly this mix of trauma and shame which made this experience unpleasant and not and then your own image wasn't very brilliant. So it was better to change it to some kind of the joke, you know, or silence. And actually what we, when we shone Burning Bush in Prague, the reaction was just incredible. It means so powerful emotionally and so 
it was the kind of the catharsis. It was it was very very. I never expected it will be like that. So yeah, it was very rewarding. And the little, I, I suddenly I, I I became like you know like the hero, <laughs> and you know and honorary check. I'm Polish, so. Agnieszka Holland, uh, like your latest film, Burning Bush, uh, many of your most important and challenging films have, have a strong personal resonance. And so you, you've alluded to it, but I'd like to go back uh, to your own story to get a sense of your particular, how your political conscience and artistic sensibility were, were shaped, beginning with your parents. It wasn't until you were six that you learned that you had a mixed Catholic and Jewish heritage. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I was six when um, around six, uh, I was playing in the in the you know courtyard, and um, some kids was calling me dirty Jew, and of course I didn't know what it means. I came back home and asked my mother what it means if if I am dirty Jew, and she said to me yes, you are Jew. It means your father is Jewish, and um, and it's nothing to be you know ashamed of. The, the contrary, you know, it it is great heritage. And she made the speech about you know like making it. And um, she was very strong in this because most of uh, my friends who had this similar heritage of being only Jewish and had communist parents mostly and survived Holocaust survivors, many of them didn't know that they are Jewish till 68 actually. And suddenly they, they heard that they have to leave Poland for Israel because it was the wave of the anti official anti-Semitism in Poland, and a lot of, of, uh, of Jewish people have been, you know, throughout of the work and from the university and so, and suddenly, you know, mostly the, those, those friends of mine have been in this time, you know, 18 or 20, or, and suddenly they, they lost their country and they lost their identity and they learned that they are something they never thought that they are. But uh, my parents didn't play this game, and... Um, my mother was in the home army. She was in the under Polish underground as a very young teenage girl, practically. And um, she was a part of Warsaw Uprising. And she was also um, helping some Jews, saving them, practically. So after the war, she, at some point, she, 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 she was decorated with this title, um, Writers Among the Nation. But for her to be witness of the Holocaust was the life experience which was probably the most important for her. And till now she's now 88 and um, if she's speaking about it, she becomes so emotional and so um, shaken. So um, she and her girlfriend, um, who was also um, helping some, some Jewish family, you know, to survive, they sealed some kind of the agreement that if they will survive the war, they will marry Jewish men and make Jewish children. And both of them did it, actually, which I'm not, not sure if is the best reason to marriage, you know, to, <laughs> to have this kind of, of the duty. But anyway, they did it both. So um, it wasn't, I, I think, that they've been quite exceptional young girls. Do you understand why they would make a pact like that? They wanted, you know, they wanted to undo in some way, you know, Hitler's work, I think. I don't know. It was. It was probably... It was, you know, very emotional and very youthful and that made me a little stupid, but it's what they did. What did that mixed identity mean for you when you were growing up? The church existed outside of our, you know, household, and um, I had the nanny, who was a very simple woman from the countryside. She was, of course, very religious, and she introduced me, you know, to the, to the church secretly, 
And after I, uh, when I was in the school, uh, in the not in the high school, it was elementary school till I was uh, probably eleven, twelve. I enrolled myself also secretly to the um, uh, religious lesson in the in the in the school. So I was uh, underground believer in some way because I didn't want to tell my parents about it. Even I think they would accept, but it was very exciting, you know, to be secret believer. And, and is it Catholic? Uh... Catholic, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, it stayed for me quite a long time. Not uh, I, I pretty I pretty quickly realized that the Catholic Church. In Poland, it's very mixed that you can like meet fantastic priests, but you have a lot of you know very anti-Semitic and very nationalistic, you know, and very primitive pe- people there. But you know, I started to read very young, you know, the, the Gospels, and um, I found the figure of Christ extremely appealing. It means uh, not only as a, as a religious leader, but as a kind of the revolutionary. Where are you now with your faith? Well, it's not easy to tell. It's you know, it's it's coming and going. It's um, it, it it is part of my heritage. I feel it very strongly. It's something which is important to me. The, exactly, you know, the what is in the beginnings of Christianity and what is in the in, in the message of Gospels. But in the same time, I have more and more problems with the institution. In Poland, um, the, the church was. Um, very supportive of the opposition and was pretty courageous in the times of the communism. Uh, During the Solidarity Movement? Yeah, with the Solidarity Movement and before even. Some priests have been collaborating with the regime, but, you know, a a lot of of, of the most important priests and also the kind of the Catholic intelligentsia, which been pretty, you know, strong, kept in some way, you know, the, the flame of the opposition and was supporting the opposition. So I think that one of the reasons why this um, opposition movement in Poland was so much stronger than in Czechoslovakia, it was the support of the Catholic Church. So I cannot condemn them, you know. You know, actually the Catholic Church is very good when it's uh, under oppression. I think that they are great if they are persecuted. But if they have the power, they become absolutely impossible. So, you know, Catholic Church today, the official Catholic Church institution in Poland is something which is... Pretty disgusting. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh cry and feel a little bit less alone asking for it subscribe now you mentioned earlier about your father's suicide in 1961 he jumped from a window after being seized by secret police on suspicion of treason i mean this was uh, during one of the early anti-semitic purges you've said that the mystery of your father's death has played a big role in your life how but certainly you are losing your father in such a mysterious circumstances. And for a very long time, it wasn't clear if he was like murdered by the police or if it was the suicide. And only after the communist fall and the archives was open, we've been able to figure out what was really, you know, the, the facts. 
but after it, it it put shadow over my life for sure. So I had a lot of problems with the, you know, I, I was unable to have the passport. It was clear that I can I will be not admitted to the film school in Poland in Lodz. So slightly, you know, in slightly like mis- the secret way, I I, I went to, to Czechoslovakia, and. Um, Why have a secret way? Well, because, you know, officially, I wasn't the official, normally be- between, among those countries, you know, communist countries, some kind of, the, you know, official exchange of the students. And I wasn't the part of this official exchange. The the woman, the Minister of Culture, who was responsible for the exactly, you know, students' exchange, and she was, she happened to be a Jewish, uh, she gave me the permission without, like, you know, going through the normal process. So... In some way, I was in in halfly illegal way in in Prague, so I escaped, you know, the the, the normal process, and um, and I I made my 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 exam there, and I was admitted. I I, I had very good, you know, admission admission note. Uh, I did very well, you know, the the exam. So you know, I, after I stayed there for five years, but it was it wasn't the normal way, you know. It was few few of us in this situation actually in Prague then. What was your father like, and what was your relationship with him? With my father? Mm, you know, my parents divorced a few years before, and it was not very good marriage, I think, and it was a very dramatic divorce. So, And my my father, when we've been living together, he was um, not very, you know, present father. He was um, he was intellectual, and he was very much into his books and his things, and he didn't notice me too much. But when they divorced, suddenly he become, became very present, you know, and he wanted to spend a lot of time with me, and he took me to the museums, to the concert halls, to the, you know, theater, films, and so. But I was a little, you know, reserved. I thought, you know, where you've been when I really needed you, and now you want you, you need me. So I was like playing some kind of, the, you know, revenge game with him. But in the same time, you know, I I was very similar to him. It means I I I resembled him. I was uh, looking like him, and I had a lot of things which you know, everybody said, "Oh, you are like your father," you know. So it it was a kind of the mixed heritage. I I liked it, but I also I I I would prefer to be like my mother rather than this kind of stuff. Do you understand why he would have jumped to his death? Well, I think that you know he. He was 41, which today I think is, you know, when I think about him today, he he could be my son. I think it was the mix of the, you know, of the despair and, and yeah, it was the despair, really, you know. I think that, you know, he was very believing communist, Stalinian communist, till some moment, and after he realized how incredible mistake it was, he spent his um, uh, war in Soviet Union, in the army, And when he came back, suddenly he seen that all his family died. And he didn't know it during his stay in Russia, you know. It was it was the shock to him. After he found one of the sisters who survived, you know, and she, she came back to Poland with her family. And, you know, it was my aunt, the only member of the, of the father's family I, I knew and loved. And after, you know, and I think he he was so damaged in some way emotionally that he was unable to be... The really supportive husband, you know, and my mother had some needs he was unable to meet, and it was actually it looked that he's selfish, but I think he wasn't selfish really he was more like incapable of the real commitment and 
And when all together, and when the marriage fell apart, I, it was it was tragic to him. He felt it as a terrible failure. So he failed, you know, on private level, on on a political level, and he suddenly felt that. It's over, you know, that I don't know. It was I don't know if it was the moment of despair or if he was thinking about it longer. But in the moment when they arrested him, interrogated him and treated him, you know, mm, they told him that he will be judged as a spy and, you know, the things like that. And I think he said, I don't want to spend, you know, the life in prison, you know. Agnieszka Holland, you knew at an early age that you wanted to make films. Why? What attracted you to the medium? I wanted to be a painter first, and I was, you know, I was a talented child and was doing the drawings and, and paintings which had been exposed on some kind of the children expositions. And, uh, and in some point when I was around 15, probably, I realized that it's only a small part of my personality, and that I cannot express myself entirely by doing this kind of the visual work that it's another dimension of, of myself which, which needs another creative channels. And um, I, I thought that I, I, I want to tell the stories, that the storytelling is an important part of my, myself, and also that um, I want to have some kind of the power, that I, I need to tell people what they have to do. So, you know, this combination of visual storytelling and leadership, I realized that making movies is exactly what it is. And um, it was, you know, a great period of the cinema. It was middle 60s, and it was... Uh, the European cinema have been wonderful and had fantastic personalities like Bergman, Antonioni, Fellini, and so on, and Wardley, Kurosawa, and others. And, you know, it was a several waves, new waves coming from France, from, from Great Britain, from uh, and Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So... Uh, it looks that the cinema is is something which is the most powerful artistically and modern and you know new medium, which unfortunately I don't think today is the case. So if I would know then, you know, what will cinema become, probably I will I will be not making this choice, but. Now it's you know too late to change. <laughs> but we talk about power and telling people what to do. Do you see? Obviously, the, all the cinema you've just alluded to didn't tell people what to do. I mean, that, they, it had a different kind of power, a more aesthetic power. Yeah, but you create, you know, the reality when you are when you are shooting film, and you know, it's fiction. It's a fictional reality, but still, you you create something, and it's it's it's. What after you see on the screen is the realization of of, of one's will. So you need to have this kind of the of the leadership, you know, gene to, to, to be a filmmaker, director. And how did the, your training in Czechoslovakia shape your sensibility? I think you once said your cinema has always oscillated between Polish pathos and Czech civility. What does that mean? It was interesting when I did Burning Bush, exactly, because, you know, they needed this this pint of Polish pathos, you know, to tell about this history. To, in some way, you know, it was generation of people who lived some kind of the tragic destiny, and they didn't want to admit that it's a tragedy. They start, they try to show it as some kind of the, you know, ah, it happened. Uh, and Poles have this, you know, the, the opposite tendency to present everything as a great tragedy, which happens only to them. And I didn't like both, you know, extremities. So in some way, I took, 
I think what was the most interesting for me from both sides. And this um, Czech realism and the Czech, you know, civility and the Polish feeling of, of importance of the destiny, you know, I, I let's mix it together in some shaker of mine. And uh, it, it makes me slightly different from one and others, but in the same time, I can, I think, express both sides. Your remarkable diverse body of work includes award-winning international productions for both film and television. I mean, from collaborations with your friend, the late director uh, Kieslowski, on his famous Three Colors trilogy, to English adaptations of The Secret Garden and Washington Square, to Oscar-nominated films Angry Harvest and Europa Europa, and many, many more. Naturally enough, considering your background, some of your most notable work, for example, Europa Europa, takes an unusual and provocative angle on the Holocaust. But you felt until your last film in darkness that you were done with Holocaust material. Why? I didn't feel that I said everything what was to tell about it. I think the Holocaust is something which will be coming back. This was the borderline human experience where the humanity suddenly was facing the wars about themselves. So um, I think that several generations will be like revisiting this, you know, experience. And I, I, I don't have impression that the questions have been answered or could be answered even. But for me personally, I felt that, you know, that spending few years of your life in the in the Holocaust subject, it, 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 it is so painful and difficult that I didn't have feeling that I need to revisit this, it again. So in darkness came, I was, I was fighting against this, you know, possibility to make this movie. And for quite a long time, I was refusing it. But at some point, I started to dream about it. So it, you know, entered my system. And when they accept, when the producers accepted to do it in the, in the real languages of the story, which was the conditions in Aquanon for me, I, I understood. Instead of having it in English, it's yes, in uh, yes. Polish, mm-hmm. Yiddish, Ukrainian, right. and German. Mm-hmm. So that turned you around. Yeah, on it was it. important for me that this movie, if I have to make this movie, it has to be as real as possible. And I'm glad because it was important film to me and something which, which made the impact on many people. In Darkness is in many ways an uncompromising, daring film. Can you talk a bit about your vision for it? What, what realities or truths you wanted to capture? Well, you know, I wanted to show... What um, for the filmmaker? What was really challenging and um, and strangely appealing? It was that the title is it's correct. It the most of the story happens in darkness, and it may, because the story briefly just to tell the story is about the group of Jews uh, from a Lvov um, ghetto who during the liquidation of the ghetto are escaping into the the uh, city sewer system. And they are um, meeting Polish sewer worker who is a little crook and a little, you know, a little petty thief, who for the money are, is helping them. But for the quite long time, we are not sure and he's not sure if he will not sell them to Germans for some better amount of money. Uh, and that is the relationship be- between this group and this man, which is very dynamic and I think very ambiguous and wonderful. It means he again be- becomes in some way the hero against his will. And he's fighting this, you know, this this gene of good in, in him. But, you know, it, it overcomes him because he, because of the, you know, human relation which slowly starts to bond between them. So it is 
very much about also about the stereotypes the one have against others and how you know how you can really embrace the other only when you see his naked humanity and you can connect to that through your naked humanity. So it is in some way optimistic story, but with a lot of, of darkness. And um, what was uh, to me important also to, to show those people in very real way, you know, also the Jews, that they are not those, you know, angelic, faceless victims, mostly you see in the Holocaust movies, but they, they are very different and very human human beings. Which means there's Which adulterers, means, uh, drug right. addicts, uh, mm-hmm. people who betray, thieves. I mean, it's... Yeah, the, the good and bad is mixing them like in any human beings. Can you talk about the reaction of the Polish audience to the characterization of this sewer worker? I think uh, that a, it a, helped a, that a, the Polish guy is not, you know, the, this scum, that he's really, that he, that he ends with the good deeds. It helped, you know, the Poles are... Um, a little shocked. They, it was shocking for Poles to realize, you know, when 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 the communists fall, suddenly the truth about the Polish behavior during the occupation and anti-Semitism during the war and so it it came up and um, it surfaced and it was for many Poles it was a shock because the Poles has very strong vision of themselves as a you know heroic innocent victims and suddenly they realize that they've been also perpetrators and they've been not so innocent. So to see the guy who actually, you know, showed the humanity by then, it was, I think, relieving. But I think what was really good that it wasn't some kind of the propaganda, you know, image, that it it shown how difficult this process was and how un, uncertain this process was to help the Jew. In December 1981, when martial law was imposed in Poland to, to smash the solidarity movement, you were out of the country, you were in Sweden, you denounced the clampdown and went into exile in France. Living and working outside of Poland, how did it change your path as a filmmaker? You know, I never regret the things which happened and the choices I made, even if I'm not sure if it was the best choices. Anyway, the fact that I started my career out of Poland, international kind of the filmmaking, it it, it gave me, it enriched me, but it also took something from me. Certainly, you know, I had to translate myself to many places and many languages, and um, I lost this kind of, the, you know, deep connection to my uh, identity, which um, is visible in my Polish films. Probably my cinema would be different if, you know, if, if it wasn't Marshallo, if I stayed in Poland and if I was able to continue with my work th- there after three movies I, I, I made in the 70s. But on another hand, you know, the, the world changed also. So the last two movies, which I did again in, 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 in my countries and, 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 and exactly in the languages of, of those countries, I have the impression of reconnecting to something which was interrupted by my emigration, but in the same time with the experience, also storytelling experience, which is more universal, and actually, what is you know what is what is good about those films that they can really touch, speaking about very very specific national subjects with the authenticity of the of the real places and real languages to 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 connect to the universal kind of audience, to be understandable and you know and interesting and emotionally accessible to the audiences over the world. So um, I think it's what I learned during this period, you know. 
those years when I was working outside, how to connect with the audience, which is not only, which doesn't share the same experiences I have. Did you ever consider going back after 1989? No, it's not the question of going back and not going back. You know, it's a free world, the European Union. You know, you can travel with no passport in the entire Europe. And, you know, you can live here and there and come back. You know, I have, I have places in L.A., I have places in France, two places actually in France, and places in Warsaw. So, you know, and, and anyway, so, so long as I'm working, I'm spending most of my time in the hotels in different cities. So... It is not anymore coming back. I, I think I, I, I'm glad that I'm not completely dependent, you know, on, on, on Polish money and Polish authorities and Polish politics. That it gives me the feeling of the independence, which, especially now when it becomes again very conformist in some way, I, it, it, it is good, you know. I think that it gives me the freedom was always important to me. Interior, interior freedom, but you need also some exterior signs of the freedom. Agnieszka Holland, I, I can't let you go without talking for a moment about your work as a director for some of the most powerful drama series on American television, The Wire, The Killing, Treme. What, what's it like working in, in that medium for you? It is, you know, working on television and working on the, in the cinema is not such a different thing for me if it is something which is close as a, as a storytelling, as a narration. So when I'm doing the TV movie like I did for HBO, Shot in the Heart, or a miniseries like Burning Bush. It is not very different from making any film. But if you are, if I'm doing one episode of the series, it is different because I have to come and to accept, you know, somebody's vision and try to, you know, make the similar kind of the work, but hoping that I will be slightly better. So it is more like, you know, like a little journey, you know, um, like the vacation to some extent. And and the stylistic stylistic exercise, and I was extremely happy when doing the wire because it was I, I found that you know I came on, on the season three, so it was yeah. How did that happen? How, how did that happen? I was, I was so surprised to see you in the credits. <laughs> I, I thought that's fantastic. You know, it means writing. It means you know I started to be disappointed with American cinema in some point. I think it's really very you know it's very few films and possibilities to make something really original especially for the outsiders, you know, if you are Brother Cohen or, you know, and then, or Thomas Paul Anderson, probably you can, you know, fight and come with something which is original. But most of the, of the, of the scripts I, I was receiving, it was... And this, uh, and this work on television I found is fantastic, you know. At some point HBO started to really be revolutionary. And The Wire is like great American novel, you know. It was something which speaks about American uh, society much deeper than any you know other film I've seen so when when you know when they offered me to to do to be part of that I I was you know I was a little scared but but you know excited and actually it worked well it was interesting and it was also I think I, I I was able to to translate myself to you know very American you know reality and it's very David gritty, Simon yeah. uh, liked my episodes very much so so he asked me if I will do the pilot for Treme, which was the real adventure because I never been before in New Orleans. Because it's Orleans set is, in New Orleans after after mm-hmm. the uh, after Katrina. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's about about musical scene, about the life of, in the city after about. And you know when I when I came there and I met a lot of of New Orleans people and you know became friend with some of them and they gave me the possibility to really 
prepare well and I spent like three months there before doing the pilot so it was enough to you know to feel it to feel the you know the flower of that and in the same time to 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 know the people and the dynamic of the city and the culture of the city and um, so I think I I did really pretty good job with the with the pilot and after I was coming back several times to the summer episode but the pilot was the best you know I'm really proud of and it was interesting because it was in some way what I remembered as a little child from after the war in Warsaw, you know, when when the city was destroyed by the war. It was practically in ruins. And you had this mix of the despair and the energy of the rebuilding, which was quite similar to what I met in New Orleans. And I remember, you know, one of the, when I was doing that, it was a lot of, of directors who wanted to do this pilot, you know. It was politically important and, you know, artistically challenging. And um, the special black directors, you know, wanted to do it. And um, I was told that um, Spike Lee wanted to do it. And um, it was one important person, the woman from the New Orleans cultural circle, who was our consultant. And... Um, uh, somebody asked her if she doesn't think that it would be better if, if Spike will do it instead of me. And she was looking, I never forget it, and she, she looked at this person and she said, no, I think Ag- what Spike knows about the sufferance, Agnieszka is much better. So in some way, you know, my uh, Polish, Jewish, <laughs> Czech life experience, you know, met this New Orleans uh, drama. And yeah, I, it was very wonderful to do it. It was a real, like, real experience. It's such a pleasure to have a chance to meet you again. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Master filmmaker Agnieszka Holland with me at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2013. Most of her movies are available to watch online. She has a new film, Green Border, about the Syrian refugee crisis along Poland's border with Belarus that's having its North American premiere this week at TIFF. It's screening on September 12th, 13th, and 15th. Today's show was produced by senior producer Sandra Rabinovich. Katie Swales is also producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer. Technical operations by Emily Chiarbezio. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, from Ireland, novelist, playwright, and poet Sebastian Barry. His 2008 book, The Secret Scripture, was a breakout success. His latest novel is longlisted for The Booker. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.